This morning, I want to uh, just share a few thoughts for you to consider, and uh, I'm, I really believe in that it's going to uplift your spirits. And uh, as I've been meditating on this, um, this story for a little while, it's really impacted my own heart, and, uh, and I think it's, I really think it's going to impact you this morning. And uh, if the, for those of you that weren't here, last time I spoke, uh, I spoke on uh, John chapter 9, so I just want to just go back over that story just, just very, very quickly, and I just want to pull a couple of parts out of that. John chapter 9, we see the, um, and Jesus passing by, he's walking down the streets, and he saw a man who was blind from birth. He lived in a world of darkness. His whole, his whole world was, was darkness. He wouldn't, and with that, a whole bunch of problems. Jesus saw this man, and so Jesus has disciples that are walking with him, and the disciples looked at this, this guy sitting down by the side of the road, and the question they asked well, in front of the man was, who sinned? <laughs> Just think about that concept for a while. If you're sitting there and, and a, a great spiritual teacher walks past with his disciples, the very first thing that they say to you is, where's the fault with this person? <laughs> who failed? Who sinned? Where's the problem? Who, who, who fell short? Where's the failure that this person's like he is? And uh, this is an interesting concept. So that I mean, you just have to look at that and say, well, that's not really an uplifting statement, is it? It's more of a, a condemning statement. It's more, about, it's more about the person's failure or perceived failure. It's more about the perceived weaknesses. It's more what was evident to them, what stood out most to them was the person's failure or the person's brokenness. And uh, so I just want to unpack this a little bit more. But it's the words that Jesus said after this. And... Um, and I just want to read for you from the message. He says, uh, you're asking the wrong question. This is the message translation. You're looking for somebody to blame or to find fault. And then Jesus goes on to say, neither this, or, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God, everybody say the works of God, that the works of God should be revealed in him. The works of God should be revealed in him. And I just want to... Um, I just want us to consider this just for a moment, that the works of God, so we have, there's nothing um, coincidental about this piece of scripture. It's not coincidence that there is a blind man who lived in condemnation. There are disciples whose perspective was that of condemnation. It's not a coincidence that Jesus also talked about the light of the world. It's not a coincidence that he also mentioned that the works of God would be revealed in him. There was something that's uh, collectively important about all these elements of this piece of scripture. And so what I want to talk about this morning is the works of God revealed in him. I just want you to consider that for just a moment. The works of God. The works of God. Uh, we, We sing often how glorious God is, but I don't think we always understand, in fact, how glorious he actually is. The works of God. God is glorious by nature. God is... Words cannot describe his, his glory. Words cannot describe completely what he is like. And I don't think we'll ever have a full understanding or appreciation of that until we meet with Christ, meet with him face to face. That the works, God himself is ornately, he is glorious in himself. If he is glorious in himself, then the works of God must be incredibly glorious. Incredibly glorious. If you look, if you consider mankind, for example, mankind has, people all around the world, whether they go to church or not, 
We have a fascination. We are drawn to things that are glorious. People are drawn, people are compelled to things that are glorious. There's many expressions of glory. For some people, it's artwork. For some people, when they say art, they can, I don't know about you, but you've seen uh, when somebody encounters something that is glorious, it's almost like their breath is taken away from them. Oh my, that is just amazing. That That is just beautiful. You think of the crocodile, uh, the crocodile man, Steve Irwin. Something to him that was glorious was the creation of God. He was so excited he doesn't, didn't, when he saw a lizard, it wasn't just a lizard. It was beautiful. Look at him. I mean, he saw the horns and the spikes and the claws, but it's like he's beautiful. Look at the little fella. I was just reading just a little while ago when, uh, you know, the, the red bull jumped from out of space, uh, Felix, somebody, and uh, he goes up in a balloon and it's the highest free fall from space. He gets out, he gets out of his, out of his um, balloon and he takes a moment just to take in the beauty of the world. And he just takes a moment and when you see the, the beauty of the world standing from a different perspective, from the edge of space, looking at the beauty of the world. It's, he couldn't say anything. He's, he was lost for words because of the beauty and the glory of God. For some people, you can see the beauty in, 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 uh, um, in geography, the, the landscape of the world. The Bible says that the earth is created by God. The heavens declare the glory of the, God, of, of the Lord. The world is the earth, uh, the earth is his footstool. So what we see in the world is a reflection of what we see in heaven. That what we see in the world, the magnificence, the, the magnificence of music, the magnificence of, of nature, the magnificence of geography, the magnificence of space. People are fascinated by it. People don't know necessarily why they're fascinated, but why? because there is a, uh, I believe it's because we are, um, it's, it's created by God and God is glorious. See, everything God makes and forms is glorious in itself. For some people, um, you've seen a photo of, uh, photos option often capture incredible beauty. Uh, sometimes you may see a photo of a, I can't quite recall it at the moment, but I remember seeing a photo of a, of a girl and, and, and this photo went viral all around the world. And she was a, and the picture captured her, captures, captures this little girl, uh, I think it was in Pakistan or one of those countries surrounded by, surrounded by war, surrounded by, uh, around by horror. And right in the middle of this was this girl and her eyes were just shining. There, there was something about that picture that captivated the world's audience and it went viral all around the world. There is something about beauty and more often that, that beauty when it is uh, captured in the environment of of something horrific, when, when there's a contrast, it lifts its impact a bit more. I mean, if you saw that girl, the same girl in a class photo, with everyone in the same uniform, it just wouldn't be the same as it was for her standing in this, in the concept, in the, with the contrast of all the brokenness and destruction around. Everyone has a different idea or, or, or has a different appreciation of the expression of the glory of God. But let me, friends, let me tell you today, none of these things were created in the image of God. There was only one thing, one element that was created in the image of God, 
And that is you and I. That is you and I. You and I were designed right from the start to express, to manifest the glory of God into this world today. That was our original design. The the Bible says that even the heavens, the beauty of the universe, could not contain the glory of God. He came to step down from heaven to live inside of mankind. If we can capture that concept in our hearts, completely revolutionize. Today I want to just talk to you a little bit about glory, because I think glory is talked about a lot, but not often defined. So this morning I just want to, if we want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians in chapter, chapter 3. So we catch moment, capture moments of glory. And often we talk about, often in churches, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament uh, is preached about the glory, about a cloud turning up and uh, about the glory being so strong that people couldn't go into a room and, and falling out. And so often you'll find that there's a lot of preaching and teaching uh, that reverts back, that actually references strongly towards Old Testament. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, people, it's, people go back and there's a lot of teaching. You may hear, even hear it out today. There's a lot of reference to Old Testament and the glory that was manifest in the Old Testament. However, this morning I want to bring you forward into the New Testament because actually we actually live today in AD, not BC. We live uh, after Christ, and so it's important that we get a hold of what the glory is like in the New Covenant. And so in, G, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7, uh, and Paul is writing about, and there's a bit of text to go through, but it's very, very powerful. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, this is the Old Testament glory, Written in stones, that was the, the, the Ten Commandments, was, so, was glorious, and that the children of Israel could not look steady at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory is passing away. So this glory about Moses, even, even Paul back here 2,000 years ago, making reference to that glory is saying, well, that glory is passing away. That's old glory. It's 2,000 years ago, that's old news. Which glory is passing away? How much will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? If, that, if the glory that Moses carried was passing away, how much more is the glory of the New Testament, of the power of the Spirit, how much more glorious is that going to be? Often we get captivated and we get mesmerized by the demonstration of glory in the Old Testament. But Paul is saying here that there is a new glory. That glory there, even as magnificent as it sounds and seems, it's old news. It's passing away. It's fading away. There is a new glory that's much more powerful than that. How much more? So, and it goes on in verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So here Paul is talking about, he's drawing a, a, a connection between the two types of glory. There's an old glory that's fading away, and there's a new glory that exceeds the old glory. He also reverts that there's one that is, that is uh, conceptualized in condemnation, but the other one is conceptualized in righteousness. The one of condemnation is fading away, but the righteousness, the glory of today is one of righteousness. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And in verse 11, for what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And then talk to you just a little bit about, uh, just, just capture, first of all, the old, just, uh, the old Testament glory. The glory of the old covenant that he was talking about, we understand that Moses, when Moses had an encounter with the Lord, he 
went up onto the mountain and he met with the Lord. And the Bible says that he came down and his face was so radiant that he had to veil his face. To us, that sounds like, wow, it's it's an impressive sounding glory. But the Bible, Paul clearly says, this glory is fading away. Moses encountered, it was a glory that came upon him. It was a glory that he met face to face. It came down over him and reflected off him. And uh, like a sponge, he ended up radiating that and came down. The problem with this type of glory was that it was more drew people to a person as opposed to God. People were more attracted, became more attracted to the person of Moses than they were to the actual person of God himself. So I want to encourage you today. The glory of the new covenant is not about a particular person. And we will go on to see more detail about what that glory is. So Moses goes on to write the law of God. Some of this, uh, for many of you, be, be quite familiar with it. But Moses goes on to write the law of God, which are the first five books of the Bible. And here is where a lot of Christianity or a lot of religion finds its, its foundation. The thing about the law was this. The law of God revealed, <coughs> excuse me, revealed or demonstrated our sin or our failure before God. The law of God that was produced I mean, there are so many laws in the Bible. There are so many laws that Moses wrote. When you look at them, you can become overwhelmed with how are we supposed to fulfill all those? How are you supposed to fulfill all those? So Moses, uh, so this law he's talking about is the law of condemnation. So often when you read some of these scriptures, when you see uh, what you should be doing, what you should not be doing, what you ought to be doing, I don't know about you, but I get overwhelmed with the fact that I'm not meeting the mark. And sin is simply that. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Anything that is not uh, the glory of God, it's it's sin. If if it's not perfect, it's sin. So when we look into the Bible, when we look into, into the Scriptures, when we read the law, what it does show us, it shows us the sin and the failure of our life. That's what it shows And when I read these things, when I read the Bible, when I read some of these laws, I automatically become conscious of what I'm not doing or the failure of the sin in my life. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing this. I mean, consider this for a moment. The Bible says, Thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Something like that. If we're not doing that, that's sin. But honestly, how often do we really actually do that? We actually love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul. I know we should be doing that, but the majority of the time, I don't think most of us do. That's just the reality, of the, the reality of how life lives. There's so many things that we ought to be doing and should be doing, and so much so that often we get put under condemnation. When you know that you should be doing something, but you're not doing that, you don't have a positive feeling about it generally. Oh, darn, sure. Oh, I should have been doing that. I should be up I should be doing this. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't do this. I should be doing that. And often you can get overwhelmed by the law or the expectations of people about what you should be doing and what you should not be doing. And you get put under a place of condemnation. And I found that um, just in communicating with a lot of people that uh, don't know Christ or don't come to church, one of the big perceptions out there is that 
the church has become the moral police. That we, all, we go out there and just tell people what they should be doing or what they should not be doing and actually putting condemnation on people. I mean, one of the typical ones was repent, repent, repent. Now, just hear me right on this. I 100% agree with repentance. Absolutely. But just to say, and just, but just to yell to people that you, they just need to repent, that they've sinned and that they're bad. And Sure, there's truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. And all you end up doing is put condemnation on people. And the perception that ends up created about the church is that we're just a bunch of self-righteous so-and-sos. And we wonder people don't want to come to church. Why? Because, I mean, I, don't, I know it doesn't happen here, but, uh, <laughs> but often we put this condemnation on people about what they should be doing and what they're doing is not good enough. You should be praying five hours a day. Oh, I'm not praying five hours a day. I feel bad about that. What you should be doing, and, and all sorts of obligations and things get mounted on us that just make you feel bad, condemned. That is the glory that is fading away. Sure, there is elements of truth. So, let me, so, so just let me just pack this up a little bit. Sure, we must repent. The thing about the, the, uh, the, the glory of the old covenant, it does reveal our failures. It does reveal our sin. We make no bones about that. But if we stay in that place of just having a sin in front of us and just telling people they should repent from their wicked, evil ways, my goodness, that is not a good way to win people. I was encouraged by the SPCA, SPCA a little while ago how they got three stray dogs from the pound and they, over a period of time they taught them how to drive a car. Yeah. I mean, it's not a race car like, you know. But dogs don't drive cars. It's something that they don't do. Their strategy was not telling these dogs to repent. Sure, these dogs may have been a little bit naughty. They may have bitten somebody. They may have done something, but they were in jail. They were in the doggy jail because either they'd been naughty or somebody had rejected them or somebody had... But these SPCA people, they got these dogs and they did not get these dogs to drive cars by telling them they should repent from their wicked, evil ways and how bad that little doggy was. Not one iota, no. They taught dogs how to drive cars through encouragement, not by condemning them, but by a different approach of pulling them up and encouragement. And I was thinking, my goodness, if we could just do that with mankind, stop condemning people for the way that they've bitten people in the past or they've been bitten or the way they've been rejected, how much more, if a dog could drive a car, how much more could somebody who's created in the image of God do such more in the world just with a little bit of encouragement? Just with a little bit of encouragement. Instead of saying, bad dog. Hey, good dog. Sorry, just (laughs) poor doggies. See, the thing about recalling John chapter 9 was the blind man, the disciples' mentality in looking at this man was through the perspective of the law. Who failed, who sinned that he's in this condition? It was a perspective that clouded the the disciples' mind. It was reflective that they were living under the law of condemnation. It certainly wasn't positive. There was certainly no good news in there. They were living under the law. 
what they looked at, their perception was the failure of the man. So I just want to just talk to you a little bit about perception. Perception is, incre- is an incredibly powerful tool that shapes humanity. Uh, a, a friend, uh, Dr. A.R. Bernard, mentioned this statement. He said, perception can go halfway around the world before reality even gets out of bed. Our perception is coloured by the condition or the beliefs of our heart. Some people can see this, two people can see the same thing, but interpret it in completely different ways. It's about perception. For example, you have to look, if you look through the scripture, you look at the Gospels, for example, you have a whole bunch of people that encounter the same Jesus. They hear the same words, they have the same experience with Jesus. But when you see how they write about their experiences and their perception, it's all very much different. Is it wrong? No. <laughs> it's just different. It's just a different perspective. And just because somebody has a different experience with Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that, that it's wrong. Just because somebody's expressing a, uh, an experience or their, their walk or their journey with Christ, and it doesn't meet the same as your experience doesn't mean their one is wrong. It means it's just different. It's a different perspective. Perspective is shaped by the the beliefs and the attitudes of our heart. Perception shapes our emotions. Our emotions then shape our conduct and behavior. So if you want to change how a person, this this is psychology 101, even the psychologists pick this up. If you want to change a, a person's behavior, all you have to do is just change what they, how they see a particular thing. And that is very, very easy to do. If you look at uh, back at Eve and, and when, when, and this, the fall of mankind, the devil did not accuse God of anything. There was no finger pointing. There was no harsh word. There was, there was nothing. All he did with Eve was simply altered her perception. That was it. He altered her perception her emotions would have been affected, and then their emotions influence the conduct. So perception is really how we see the world, how we see God, how we see ourselves, demonstrates and, and, and outworks into our life and how we live our life. So our perception, how we see the world, is an important thing. See, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, doesn't come to bring us condemnation. The Holy Spirit brings us the ministry of righteousness. We see Jesus. When Jesus walked on this earth, the Bible says that he lived a completely sinless and blameless life. Completely sinless. He walked on this earth. The only person ever on this earth that walked with no sin was Jesus Christ. This amazing transaction. The only person who walked on this world without sin who reflected the goodness and the kindness of God. Jesus said, whatever you see me do, you see my Father do. So Jesus himself was a, a pure reflection of the nature of God inside of the world today. That's what he was like. And you know, there was no clouds, there was no haziness about him. He purely reflected the glory of God in the world today. But if you think about it, Jesus then went to the cross as a substitute and paid for all of our sins. He paid for our failures, our past failures. He paid for our present failures. And he paid for our future failures. He paid for everything. 
Friends, this is the difference. This is the, the point of difference that separates the glory of the old covenant of condemnation to the glory of the new covenant that far excels that which is fading away. It is the concept, it's the, it's the fact that Jesus himself went to the cross and knew no sin, he was perfect in every way, went to the cross to give his life as an exchange, not for nature, not for the birds, not for the animals, not for geography, for one thing, for you and I. He knew that our failures and our mistakes and our sins separated us and, and clouded the glory of God from our lives. So he made that one sacrifice for all mankind, the Bible says. All of our sins, all of our failures. So the ministry of condemnation will want to bring it up in front of our faces all the time. You haven't done this, you should have done this. You're going to do this in the future. But the Bible says that, Jesus says that for all of our sins, past, present, and future, he took them on the cross and paid as a substitute. So now, in exchange for our sin, we get his righteousness, which is a different type of glory. That is the glory of the new covenant, is the righteousness that Jesus Christ exchanged for us on the cross. That is the glory of the new covenant. That is the glory that you and I are called to be living in. And an amazing thing. So now, in Christ, we are seen as righteous. Seen by who? Seen by God. If God sees us as righteous, if you know that God sees you as righteousness, how would that affect your life? How would it make you walk? How would it make you talk? How would it affect the way that you relate to one another? How would it affect the way that you turn up to church? What would your life be like if you were conscious, more conscious of that transaction that Jesus Christ made than becoming conscious of your sin and your failures. How would that change your life? Not that we are righteous, but through Jesus we are made righteous. We don't need to blame our sin. We don't need to blame other people for our sin. We don't need to excuse our sin. We don't need to excuse our failures. We don't need to manage it. Manage is probably a a modern-day word. We just need to manage our sin, (laughs) manage our failures. We don't need to do any of that. We can live a new life, not a perfect life, but a life that's been righteous, been made righteous through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid. That is the glory of the new cut. It's not about us and what we have done, but it's about what Jesus has done for us, both past, present, and future. That is the glory of the new covenant that far excels the the one of the old. So this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is a journey of becoming more like like Jesus and and to reflect his glory. And there are many expressions of that. That is not a mono expression of of God's glory. There is not just one way that God's glory is expressed. I mean, that's just silly. God's multi-creative. And if he is multi-creative, you only have to look at nature to see the, the, the dimension of God's expression of his glory. How much more does he want to manifest that in our lives? See, God's glory liberates our worship in verse, in, in verse 12. 
in verse 12 to 17, uh, so, sorry, in verse 18, but we all with an unveiled face, but we all, that means no one's excluded from this. All of us, we all, who is he talking about? All of us. No one's excluded. No one's excluded from this New Testament, this new covenant glory. For we all, the Bible says, with an unveiled face, beholding it as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. The same image as what? The same image as Jesus Christ. It is a process of discipleship where our lives are being molded and shaped uh, with, uh, uh, to become into the same image of Jesus Christ. That is the glory of the new covenant. It's not just about individuals. It's about us as a collective body. It's what causes us to be a church. It's, church is not just about a, a group of people just coming together and just having a hanging out. It's actually a process, a journey together that we walk on as we experience and our, our lives are transformed more like Christ from glory to glory on a day to base. And it's not an individual thing. It's a collective thing. So it's, a, it's an us. It's not just a me and you or just for these people. It's for all of us. All of you here today called to reflect the glory of God, both as an individual in a unique way, but together collectively as a church. All of us are being transformed in some way or another. The transformation process is not one of condemnation where we're beating, getting beaten with a stick. You should be doing that. You should be doing this. You shouldn't have done that. Oh, you really did that? Well, that was pretty bad. See, we're not transformed by condemnation. We are transformed by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And he is a nice person. <laughs> he is not angry with you. He, he leads us. He doesn't drive us. He leads us with love and compassion. That is the thing that separates old covenant from new covenant, that we are led by the Holy Spirit from glory to glory, not beaten with a stick, not condemned. There are two elements we're led, we're, that bring us into a place of transformation. It's both truth, truth that the Scripture brings out, but it's also through grace, which is the price that Jesus paid for on the cross, and we're led by the Holy Spirit. My friends, if we only have condemnation, if we only live under the law, then the symptom will be this. You'll never, ever feel good enough. Nothing you do will ever make you feel right. For people who struggle with their standing before God, a question they may ask is, I wonder what God really thinks about me. Does God really like me? I bet you've been a Christian for 10 years. It tells me that you're still living under the law of condemnation. You need to have a revelation of, of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, the transaction that you placed. See, friends, a lot of that is affected by our perception of how we see God. We'll just we'll look on to that another day. But just in finishing up, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, what is this ministry? This ministry is the glory of the new covenant. That you can't earn your salvation, that this transaction, this wonderful thing that Jesus Christ did for us. Since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we don't lose heart. And he goes on in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels 
that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This is an incredible concept. That this treasure, this glory that God, the works of God, the works of God that are glorious, that he would choose by making a way through the blood of Jesus Christ that would not be just contained to the heavens, that it may not just be contained as a cloud that comes upon us and moves away. That this glory, this treasure would be deposited into earthen vessels. Earthen vessels speak of the imperfections of our lives. That's what makes the contrast. That's what makes, gives the glory an extra wow factor. If the glory was contained in such a beautiful place like the temple was, it's still amazing. But how much more when Jesus, when God tore the veil in two and said, no longer am I going to be contained into, a, into one particular place, but I'm going to place my spirit and my glory available to all mankind. All you have to do is to receive Jesus Christ into your heart. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Friends, that's what makes it so much awesome. That with all our failures, all our mistakes, all the cracks, all the nicks and the cuts and the chips and all those things that happen to be us as an earthen vessel, that God and all his goodness and all his love would say, I'm going to put this treasure into this person here. I'm going to put my treasure, the treasure of my glory into these people. And then they shall be the light of the world. The light of the world. That the people would look and say, who is this God? That He's not contained in a, in a building or not contained in a spiritual guru. But he's carried by ordinary people like you and I, who are failures and mistakes, past, present, and future. How wonderful is our God that he would step out of heaven and want to live inside of our hearts knowing that we're not perfect, but yet we were made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful experience. What a wonderful expression of the love and the nature of God. Why don't you just close your eyes right now, just for a moment. There may be people here today, and you're aware of your failings, your mistakes, your sins. Maybe it's your past ones. Maybe it's your current ones that you're going through right now. My question to you this morning, how do you see? How do you see God? Is your perception influenced by condemnation? Is your perception influenced by what you should be doing? Or has your perception been changed so that you now see yourself as somebody washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ? All of us here today have our imperfections and our weaknesses and our failures. So we become like what we behold when we behold something. We are drawn to that. So if, if we behold our weaknesses and behold our sin, if we behold our failures, we will live a life of condemnation, never feeling good enough.
And maybe that's what you're experiencing. But if we behold the love that Jesus Christ and the transaction that Jesus made, if we behold that, wow, our lives are so much changed. Maybe there's some people here today you need to let go of some things of the past. Maybe you're too much aware of your failures, too much aware of your sins right now. And you need to say, I need to shift my perspective. I need to shift my perspective on not to what I should be doing or ought to be doing, but to what Christ has done for me. If you're here in that place this morning, every eye closed, every head bowed, I just want you to just raise your hand and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to shift my perspective back to you. I want to shift my perspective back to what you did for me on the cross. That transaction that took place, that that you exchanged your righteousness for my sin. I'm going to start to behold that. I want to just raise your hand just quickly. I need to let go of some things. I need to let go of some failures. Thank you, thank you. What I want us to do right now is just to go back to that song. As we sing the song, Amazed, I want you to become, to start to consider that the transaction that Christ did, that Christ made for you and I on the cross. I'm amazed that he would take a person like me and exchange my failures for his righteousness. That he would take your failures in exchange for his righteousness. Come on, why don't we just stand right now? Let's just worship him just for a few minutes.